Today's episode is brought to you by living in a society. I mean, I don't. I live in a world covered by endless water. But some people live in a flying society, attended by servbots with full living facilities, and I'm kind of jealous of that. Anyway, the joke here is that Gesellschaft, the Bonzes airship, translates to just society in German. And I know it means, like, more of an organization type as opposed to general purpose-wider society. And I hate explaining the joke, and I've already ruined it at this point. So let's go live in a society together in 1999's Misadventures of Tron Bond on today's episode of What Am I Podcasting For? Hello, and welcome to What Am I Podcasting For? My name is Carlisle, and this show is the chronicle of my attempts to play through the entire Mega Man series, from Mega Man 1 to Mega Man 11, and as many of the 100-plus games in between as I can. And today, we're returning to the Mega Man Legends timeline, with technically the precursor to Mega Man Legends, even though it was released later. You'll notice that this game is the first game to not name Mega Man in its title, and that's because... There is one brief Easter egg cameo of classic Mega Man, and that's it. The game's cover in English did say, hey, this is from the creators of Mega Man Legends, and it did originally include a demo disc of Mega Man Legends 2 as well, as like a promo feature to get you to buy it. But this is definitely going to be a weird one to talk about, because this game is... Even if it is set within a Mega Man universe, a Mega Man setting, it occurs just a couple years before the events of Mega Man Legends... There's no Mega Man in this game. <laughs> Instead, as the title implies, Misadventures of Tron Bond details kind of some of the backstory of the Bond family. Specifically, how they got their airship, the Gesellschaft, which, yes, I learned how to pronounce because I'm going to have to say it a whole lot in this episode. It still controls largely at its core in the same style as Mega Man Legends did, which is to say that really awkward pre-second analog stick, like... Your turn buttons and your move sideways buttons are different buttons, yada yada. But this time, instead of playing as Mega Man running around, we are playing as the Bonds, generally driving one of their robots, the Gustav, which is still fairly humanoid, still moves largely the same, is a little bit clunkier, doesn't really come with special weapons. Instead, the Gustav has the ability to pick up and throw things around, which sometimes I forgot was an option and is required at several points in the game in spite of that. Oops. However, being as how we're talking about the Bonds, we have the assistance of the Surfbots at our side. And there's a ton to deal with them, which I'll get into as we dig into this game, because this game also has a bit of a weird format to it. While Mega Man Legends, the original, did fully, like, 3D in-engine cutscenes and, like, animated everything live, The Adventures of Tron Bond focuses more on a visual novel-ish presentation most of the time. Not necessarily still images, but essentially animated cut-ins of the characters while they're talking and stuff, which I have to say are actually super well done. They're full of just silly detail, and like, normally in Mission, Tron's portrait for dialogue might just be confined to a circle, but then she'll get mad, and she'll straight up like lean out of the circle with a hand on the edge, like she's shouting out the window of the mech. In spite of the fact that some might consider it a bit of a downgrade in presentation, it still absolutely has all the energy of the Mega Man Legends games. To dig into this, we're just going to launch straight into the first stage. This game is set on an island called Rishup, 
Which I think it's probably only mentioned in the instruction manual and by, like, one NPC, which we'll come back to that specifically later in the game. The Bonds have come here in search of an ancient rune and a refractor by the name of Diana's Tear, which is supposedly worth a fortune. And in our opening stage, which serves as our tutorial, we play as Teasel Bond. And yes, he's driving the robot, but we're playing as Teasel! Yes! And as mentioned, this is the tutorial. It is extremely simple and light on enemies, but it does teach you to pick up and throw things, and it most importantly teaches you the beacon bomb and how to make use of your serve bots. In every gameplay mode in this game, other than when you're at the hub, you have access to the beacon bomb, where you hold R2 and then you go into straight up a targeting mode, and whatever you fire the beacon bomb at essentially is a command to your serve bots. If, for instance, you send your serve bots towards a little crack in the ground that's way too small for your mech to fit through, your serve bots will wander in there and come back carrying treasure for you. If you fire the beacon bomb at enemies, your serve bots will start climbing on them and beating on them and distracting them for a little while until they get thrown off. You can send your serve bots to run through traps and go hit the switches on the far side to disable them, because your serve bots are actually incredibly durable. They are invincible little Lego children. And this serves as one of the core mechanics of the game that makes it different from Legends. We give up a lot of the traditionally Mega Man stuff like special weapons in favor of basically playing Pikmin. Which, once again, if Legends beat Ocarina of Time to the punch, this game beat Pikmin to the punch by about a year and a half to two years, which is impressive. Anyway, at the end of the tutorial stage, while Teasel and Bon Bon have been searching for this rune and they managed to find it, before they can enter it, a lone collector by the name of Glide shows up. And let me tell you, I got some whiplash from this dude being named Glide. I know we haven't gotten there in this series yet, but Glide is also the name of a character in the Battle Network games, and he is a completely different entity here, and I had never played this game before. Like, full disclosure, this was literally my first exposure to this game. But anyway, Glide's a lone collector who has a flying mech of his own, and while we're able to fight him off some, he activates a super attack, takes out Teasel and Bon, and basically says, well, time on your loan is up and you don't have the money, so we're going to make you go work it off. This news gets back to Tron Bond. Tron does some digging and finds out that in order to fund the construction of the Gesellschaft, Teasel borrowed one million zenny from somebody by the name of Loathe, and apparently was not ready to pay it back. And this kicks us off on our journey proper as Tron makes the decision to get one million zenny in order to pay off her brother's debt and get her brothers back by any means necessary. So, the basic structure of The Misadventures of Tron Bond involves going back and forth from the Gesellschaft's main hub, and then going on individual missions in order to rack up funding. And I'm going to talk about the hub a bunch first here, because this is where a lot of interesting parts of this game are. The hub is not an area you actually walk around, it's just a series of menus. But in each area, you will see several of your different serve bots working. And there's a bunch of different facilities and functionalities that emerge as you play the game and as you develop relationships with these serve bots. Because, see, here's the thing. The serve bots play a big part in this game. There are 40 total serve bots that Tron has created, each of which, we find out, has their own little quirks and personalities and preferences. 
And we don't just see these individual personalities in the form of what they talk about and what they do around the ship, but every single serve bot also has different gameplay impact. It's kind of hard to choose where to start talking about serve bots because there's a whole bunch of stuff going on with them. For one, serve bots do actually have individual stats. Attack, speed, and brains. These stats go on a scale from 1 to 4. Each serve bot may start at different values in that, and they have different limits on how high these individual values can go. If you take serve bots out onto the field, attack impacts how much damage they do when you order them to attack enemies. Speed impacts how fast they're able to run around in order to follow your commands, in order to regroup with you after, like, falling off an enemy, etc., etc. And brains primarily affects how likely they are to grab good items when you send them out to search, like, caves and homes and stuff, but also affects how good of items they are likely to bring back if you send them off to individually scout out areas, which is a function you could do at the headquarters where you assign serve bots to different areas and they bring you back stuff between missions. But also, every servebot has an individual personal ability. Some of these abilities are known right at the start of the game. A handful of servebots, I think, don't have these and are just like general purpose servebots. But these abilities can generally be classified in one of three ways. The sniper servebots, of which you start the game with number one as your only known sniper, are basically your gunners when you're in the more action-based stages of this game. The higher your servebot stats in terms of speed and attack, the faster you can attack, and the more powerful your weapons will be. And interestingly, this doesn't just like slightly amp up the damage. In some cases, it visibly changes the attack in a way that makes it really clear that it is doing much more damage. Like when you make the bazooka, a high attack servebot will cause multiple explosions per shot, which is great. After the snipers, you also have various servebots who have combat-related functionalities. Things like charge tackles or slingshots with bombs and stuff. When they learn these, you can basically use them as strong attackers against enemies, where instead of just like jumping onto the backs of enemies to slow them down, they'll actually whip out different arsenals and join you on the assault on targets, which is a great way to rack up extra damage. And then there are the serve bots who have gameplay functionality at the main hub. This includes, for instance, a serve bot whose whole purpose is just to help act as a tutorial for the game. There's a serve bot who can change the music, or a serve bot who can change the paint job on the Gustav. A serve bot who unlocks different minigames, which these minigames essentially serve as ways to boost your serve bot stats. They're kind of fun minigames, but the demand and time investment in order to get one serve bot to increase its stat by one it can kind of start to add up, and if you want to max out a servebot stats through these, it gets really tough, actually. The demands are pretty precise. But in order to unlock all these different skills, you'll need to actually talk to the servebot and figure them out. Not just in a sense of like, oh, you talk to them once and it unlocks a thing, but they may mention like, oh, I, I need something to help inspire me. Or you may need to bring them with you on missions in order to raise their brains rating so that they discover that talent on their own. And yes, as mentioned, there are unique items you can find throughout the game that you actually need to bring back and give to specific serve bots. And the game is nice enough to be like, if you try to give an important item to the wrong serve bot, it will not allow you to do it. So you're free to experiment with what you give the serve bots, but there's actually like a ton of little depth here because there's basically 40 little mini characters to try to raise up as you desire. 
Heck, if you refuse to interact with certain serve bots for a long amount of time, they get lazy. And if they max out that slot, you'll have to take them through a run in the Torture Chamber minigame in order to whip them back into shape, or they will just, like, stop accompanying you on missions or stop providing their HQ benefit. Which would be a pretty funny thing, and to be fair, does not actually happen that much. You might have, like, a couple serve bots start suffering from it by the end of the game. But definitely could get pretty annoying, especially with it requiring pretty precise execution of the minigame. But that's my point, is the Gesellschaft and the HQ itself is a significant part of this game. Getting to know your serve bots, you can even name your serve bots. If you start having favorites, you can go in and give them individual names to find them easier later. And speaking of finding a favorite, partway through the game, you can get one of the serve bots to give you what's referred to as the red head parts, which changes the little knob on top of a serve bot's head to red. And whichever serve bot you choose to do this for becomes your favorite. And there's a couple implications later in the game on who you pick out to be your favorite, because they sort of get promoted to be an important character in the story. I'm talking a lot about this because it was actually kind of really impressive just how much they put into this hub and into the whole idea of running a bunch of serve bots. It was a bit overwhelming at first, but I will say, you don't need to raise every single surf bot. You really don't. There's cool stuff if you do hunt down all these mini-quests and raise them all up differently and all this stuff, but you don't need to. Once you've finished going around and saying hi to your crew, you'll eventually come back to the mission select screen. In this game, there are six core missions which serve as six different styles of level and styles of play. Well, five styles of play, I guess. Sort of. Maybe four. Anyway, four of these missions are immediately available. Two of these missions become available later in the game. Barring one of them that we'll cover in a bit, they each have essentially three different levels to them. Each level is harder than the last and more complex, but will reward you with a higher amount of Xenion completion. And you do need to do these sequentially, and other than the one that doesn't have a level system, you can't go back and redo stages in this game. So your general goal is to complete enough missions in this game to meet your funding limits in order to rescue your brothers. And I will say right now, even with the cost of buying the upgrades for your mech, there is probably almost close to twice as much potential Zenny to earn in this game as you actually need in order to finish it and buy everything. You have a huge amount of leeway in this game. But with that said, let's jump into the first of those missions by going and robbing a bank. Okay, so maybe the first time we go to rob a bank is not exactly going to succeed, because the servbots accidentally drop Tronbon off at the vet instead. Oops. The bank robbery stages are essentially about going around, raiding a town, and stealing all of its crap. You'll learn to send your servbots inside of houses in order to loot them, all while kind of Grand Theft Auto style being harassed by cops in, like, cop cars and choppers and stuff like that. These are primarily action-heavy stages that are probably some of the best in this game overall, 
In the first of the three levels for robbing a bank, you just need to amass a certain amount of money, while in the later two stages you need to successfully navigate your way to the bank that you were actually trying to rob. And this stage does have some fun stuff. Like if you send the servbots at cop cars or cops carrying riot shields and stuff, the servbots will straight up rob the cops and come back with these parts. And if you bring these parts back to the gazelle shaft, you can actually use them to reduce the cost of development on upgrades for your mech, which is kind of hilarious. At the end of each stage, you'll be accosted by one of the police officers, whose name is apparently Denise Marmalade, although you don't find this out until the very end of the game. And it's just kind of a light-hearted, like, goofy... Like, if the Bonds were Team Rocket, then Denise Marmalade is basically Officer Jenny. But Tron doesn't really hold any active malice for this girl. In fact, she kind of feels bad for the fact that by the end of it, Denise's inability to stop Tron is clearly going to get her fired. Especially after Denise blows part of the police department's budget on trying to build her own mech. But Denise is actually kind of fun. The second fight with her is kind of amazing. She can literally just run up to your mech and judo throw it. It's like twice her size and she can whip this giant mech around. But yeah, these, these stages are honestly fairly fun and basically what you expect out of Tron Bond. In a similar vein, unlocked later in the game, the farm stages, which are also action stages that control basically identical to the bank raids. Except this time, you're running around on a farm operated by Loathe the Lone Shark, and you're trying to steal all of their livestock in order to sell it off for a profit. This one puts the emphasis a little bit differently. You have to send your servbots to go pick up and steal the livestock, or ride it back towards a truck that you're accompanying. And various, like, chicken-style robots, which I didn't even mention this, but Loathe's company with Glide and stuff employs their own pseudo-servbots, which are these little chicken-headed robots. But all these different, like, chicken robots and farmers and stuff will actually try to interfere with your servbots stealing stuff, so you'll have to actually defend them, including in the boss stages at the end. It sounds like it would be really escort mission-y, and on a couple occasions it can be a touch frustrating, but generally not because you enter a fail state, but rather because, like, you need to keep your servbots from taking damage and getting knocked out. But they're invincible, they don't die or anything. You will eventually succeed at these missions, but that's the action stages. There is a third action stage as well, and this is the stage that breaks the standards of how the rest of the missions work, which is the ruins that Teasel and Bon Bon were going to go investigate. You can come here freely, it's the one mission you can enter and exit and do infinitely whenever you want, and whenever you enter it, all the enemies in it respawn, so you always have a way to get more money no matter what you do in this game. And this is almost kind of a classic Mega Man Legends dungeon dive. The game has implemented a small mini-map now, which is a nice little change of pace. Though you can't view like an entire area map, which is sometimes a bit of a pain. And your goal is just to dive into these runes and bring back anything of value you can. This is a really important stage in order to get many of the upgrades for the Gustav, which... The difference between the Gustav at the start of the game, with like basic level servbot serving as a sniper, and endgame Gustav with like a max stat servbot and all the different like upgrades you can get and unlock by getting parts from here is absolutely gigantic. We're talking like four times the HP, several times the damage. You really want to come into this place at some point during the game. It will take at least a couple trips into here, because you do need to get the parts behind the first boss in this area in order to make your bazooka, which you can use to bust open walls and discover other sections of this area. 
But for the most part, this is kind of a small Zelda dungeon. You'll run through a bunch of rooms that just have enemy encounters you'll have to finish off. You have a boss fight at the very end of the ruins. And this boss fight is a giant, like, hippo-looking robot that, in order to get it to open up its mouth and reveal its weak point, you need to order your serve bots to charge into its nose and, like, make it sneeze. This is possibly the single most valuable mission to complete, because you get a full 1 million zenny upon defeat of this boss at the very end. But it's probably one of the tougher challenges in the game. The boss especially does a lot of damage and is very hard to avoid the attacks of, so... But that's that. That's the three main missions that we get in terms of action. But there's still three other missions in this game that are a little bit less about action, and more about... puzzles? Mission 2 and Mission 6 later in the game are puzzle missions that take place at a harbor. Tron is driving up in a boat with the assistance of her servbots and stealing containers full of valuables. Everything from stakes to pearls to TVs, anything she can get her hands on to go sell it later. However, you're driving a variant of the Gustav that is designed for heavy lifting. But even it has its limitations, so these are fixed grid-based puzzle stages, 18 of them in total, where the goal is to successfully collect four containers within a limited number of actions. The Gustav is capable of driving around the harbor, picking up crates, and setting them down. With wooden crates, you can pick them up and move them freely. With crates that contain the goods that you are trying to collect, you have to make sure that you can return to the ship within 10 steps, or else you will have to set the crate down and pick it up again. And with heavy metal crates around the area, you can only pick them up and then turn before setting them back down. And this matters because the limited number of actions you get is the limit to the number of times you can lift crates. So within that limitation, you'll need to arrange things so you can get the four main supply crates back to your ship in that limit. Plus, while its lifting capacity might be limited, the Gustav is free to wander around the harbor as long as it can physically climb to that location. Unlike a lot of other puzzles games that might involve moving around boxes, the Gustav can literally climb over boxes in order to get to the other side of them. It's difficult to describe just how good these are and paint a clear picture, because there's a whole bunch of technique to these things. For instance, you can drop spare containers just into the water around this harbor in order to create paths for yourself to take. And while every stage gives you only 8 opportunities to actually move crates yourself, you may not necessarily need all 8 of them. There is a bonus crate in every single level, and the perfect solution for the stage does get you all 5 crates, but if you decide not to take that bonus crate, you can finish the level and have an extra move to spare, which opens up some alternate solutions. That said, this does get pretty tricky, and it gets especially tricky in the Mission 6 version, the second set of container stages that opens up later in the game, because the rules change a little bit for it. You have less lifting opportunities in these stages. Instead, now you need to get your serve bots to help by operating forklifts and cranes around the area. This enables you to have new way to move the crates around without using up your own limited movements, 
but opens up some new stunts and tricks to them. For instance, getting your servbot on a forklift to drive a crate back to your ship while you are still holding up a crate that otherwise would be in the way. And the first couple stages with this are actually like near impossible until you realize that's a thing you can do. And I have to say, this game can inform you of that if your servebot is smart enough. One of my favorite little things in this game is that there is a hint system for these puzzles. They're actually really forgiving in that regard. You have a full restart system, you have a go back one step system option available in it, and you have a hint system. But how good of a hint you will get is based on how smart your servebot is, because it's literally you asking your servebot for insight. If you have a servebot with a brains rating of 1, your servebot will just be like, wow, that's a lot of crates, isn't it? If you have a servebot with a brains rating of 4, they'll take a look at things and be like, okay, I don't know the exact specifics, but I'm pretty sure you're going to need to drop two metal crates into the harbor, and probably your first move should be this. And that's usually enough to figure out the rest of the stage. These stages are either going to be people's favorite parts of this game, because to be honest, they are actually really well-designed puzzles, and only having 18 stages means they don't, like, linger too long or get caught up repeating the same kind of thing over and over again. It really does just, like, quickly, cleanly, and efficiently create this interesting puzzle game. They're either going to be people's favorites, or they're going to hate them. And the good news is, if you hate them, well, you do still have every other mission in the game in order to rack up more than enough funds to finish the game, but it is certainly a change. If you want something that's a little bit puzzly, but is still a little more action-oriented, though, we can go on a proper dig with other diggers. Mission 3 involves a raiding basically a first-person dungeon exploration segment. The cave is way too small to fit the Gustav in, and Tron doesn't really want to be seen down there, so she sends three of her servbots accompanied by basically a small flying interface that she can use to guide the servbots around and still give them orders and stuff, but it isn't necessarily capable of attacking on its own. This basically creates an exploration-dedicated mode where we are focused on finding ways to disable traps, finding keys for doors and treasure chests, and solving the problems and hints given to us by various diggers that are also down in this cave system. Because let's face it, the servbots are kind of cute, and Tron knows that, so she gets the servbots to actually interact with these different diggers and kind of help them out, but mostly aim to steal the treasure from under their noses. So we get a whole lot of minor but fun NPCs down here. We do have some combat down here where you have to entirely rely on your servbots to attack, and I have to say, sometimes it feels like the damage in this game kind of glitches out a little bit. I don't know exactly how it happens, but sometimes it takes a long time to kill enemies in this game just randomly, and I noticed it the most down here. I'm not sure what's with that. But there are some fun minor stories going on here. Like, there's this whole side event about Dig's Riddles, which is an old digger by the name of Uncle Dig, who is referring to some elixir of youth. If we find his hints throughout all of the different missions, there's this whole story we find at the end of it where the elixir of youth is apparently uh, root beer, and it gets the surfbots a little drunk. And then we also find out that apparently Dig has been dead for years, and making root beer allows his spirit to move on. This mode's extremely serious, if you can't tell. But while that's supposed to be the creepy story, the two that are actually creepy are the kids Zig and Zag. You only start finding them once you get the ability to have your servbots start drilling through walls. So they're these kids that have to have been trapped down here. One of them is constantly leading you into danger if you follow his advice. And they even have this weird 
quiz segment partway through, which, first off, this is the only time that the island is mentioned as Rishop Island, and the only way to know that is through this quiz, which you kind of have to guess at. But also, one of their questions is, what color of refractor did you get in the first stage? There's no way for them to have known that. My point is, is Uncle Dig may have actually been a ghost in the game, but I'm pretty sure these kids are something worse. Anyway, you do have, like, little boss fights at the end where you have to divert your serve bots around to, like, run into reaver bots' weak points and mess them up, or deliberately set off traps next to the reaver bots that are attacking you. The whole mode is just kind of a fun story. I enjoy dungeon diving as a thing, but it's definitely slower paced. It probably took up maybe 30-40% to 40% of my total playtime in order to finish this mode, and the first stage of three, essentially, is one long tutorial, and even the rest of it feels really tutorialized in a way that you don't really have to rack your brain or anything. It's not here to stump you. I don't know. It's alright. There is one other kind of mission in the game, and this one's a little bit hidden. In order to access the secret mission in the game, you need to set a serve bot as your favorite. Once you've done this, you can return to Tron's room, and one of the serve bots who's always asking Tron to take a break will say, Hey, I know you're worried about us, but why don't you leave your favorite in charge? We'll all listen to him, and you can rest for a couple hours. And Tron's like, You know what? Okay. And so your favorite serve bot steps up and says, you know, we should try to help out Mistron and do a mission on our own. So they get the brilliant idea to go to a casino. You take a small amount of Zenny with you, and you're essentially gambling on either bingo or a game of, like, high-low in order to try to make as much Zenny as possible. The winnings from it are pretty tiny overall, not really worth the amount of time it takes, especially compared to the main missions, but it's a nice little minigame de-stress if you want. Anyway, whether through action or more puzzle stages, we will eventually build up the money we need. This is how the story progresses. Once we get one million zenny, Tron goes to meet Lex Loathe, they really picked a name there, who is this, like, comical caricature of a big, round, like, moneylander. Like, he kind of looks like the Penguin from Batman. <laughs> He's even got a giant rhino nose for some reason. Tron hands over the money, but then Loathe goes, well, that's great and all, that was the initial, but what about the interest? Your brother borrowed all this money quite a while ago and paid nothing back. He actually still owes us two million. Tron gets really frustrated, but she's like, fine, I'll be back with the rest of the money, and we're back to square one. This is when mission five for the farm and the second containers missions open up, and they're worth more than normal. We also get, at that time, a cutscene between Glide and Loathe that mentions that they're not quite willing to just give up Teasel and Bond yet. Once we do get two million zenny, we have the option to go turn it in and start the finale of this game. When Tron brings this two million in interest payments, Loathe pulls the whole, oh yeah, well now there's interest on the interest, and when Tron and the servbots call him out on this, he has Glide capture Tron and throw her into the mines where her brothers are. Now the Bonds are all reunited. Teasel tells Tron that essentially him and Bon Bon have been forced into labor in order to dig up a giant refractor, which supposedly powers this ancient superweapon called the Colossus which Loathe has been trying to get his hands on in order to take over the world. And while Tron's like, well, that sounds utterly ridiculous, Teasel's like, yeah, but we actually did dig up that refractor, and I'm pretty sure the Colossus is real 
to. And so Tron says, well, all right, it's time to do something about that. And she radios back to the gazelle shaft and talks to the surfbots and is like, hey, it's time to put this plan into action. Come rescue us. And this is where the favorite surfbot steps up. All the other surfbots are way too nervous to actually take the risk. Surfbots in general are pretty scared unless Tron's directing them directly. But the favorite surfbot steps up and is like, you know what? I can do it. I can drive the Gustav. And so for these final stages, we're actually playing as a surfbot. I mean, we're still driving the Gustav, so it doesn't really affect our game, but... The final stage of this game begins with us digging through the mines and jail cells and stuff, looking for Tron and Teasel in order to bust them out. Once we get them, Tron decides, hey, why don't we just like steal the Colossus and the Refractor out from under their noses? Why don't we just get hella revenge? But upon discovering the Colossus, first off, it is way too big to steal easily. And second off, we finally get our boss fight with Glide proper. I have no idea how you would do the glide fight without a ton of upgrades. <laughs> glide is super fast. Like, it is not possible, I think, to avoid some of his attacks. Or at least it sure doesn't feel that way. Like, he can dash at you with a sword that, even if you're already running away from him and jumping, is still really likely to hit you. Like, he can just turn and start his next attack and stuff way faster than you can get onto him. It's a really dangerous fight. Or it would be if I wasn't fully upgraded at that point. But damn. He feels like he is designed for a much faster game than the Gustav. When we defeat Glide, he prepares to do his ultimate Glide transformation. But then Bon Bon jumps off a cliff and onto his mech and just wrecks it. So Glide has to run off and we think we're good. But then it turns out that while we were fighting in front of the Colossus, Loathe has snuck aboard the Colossus and activated the refractor within it and is now powering it up. The Bonds make their escape back to the Gesellschaft. They get into a fight trying to shoot down the Colossus, but it kind of fails. Tron gets majorly wounded, but she orders her favorite servbot to go finish off the Colossus, and we get our final boss fight atop this giant robot, which, like, literally has an entire boss arena around its head. This thing is that big. The first phase of this fight, we primarily just have to run around this thing, pulling out all of the energy pylons that are powering it. Some of them, we have to use the beacon bomb to send the servbots to climb up and pull it out themselves. In the second half of the fight, we have to deal with the detached head of the Colossus, which is now floating around and attacking us. Most of its attacks are actually fairly simple, but they are fairly damaging if it catches us and manages to hit us. The funniest part and most interesting part of this boss fight is that its HP gauge is so huge it is literally going off screen. And until you drop this boss down to like a quarter of its remaining health, you won't even see its HP gauge budge. It's actually kind of funny, but... It's definitely no Juno, and I don't even think it's really as hard as Glide was beforehand. If you've made it this far, you can probably pull it off. With the Colossus critically damaged, the servbots grab the core refractor out of the Colossus, leaving it to start collapsing and blowing up, and we get the hell out. Glide and Loathe get captured by the Bonds, who decide to turn them over to the police and essentially set it up so it looks like Denise captured them, which for poor down-on-her-luck Denise basically spares her losing her job. And we get just kind of some sweet heartfelt bits of Teasel telling Tron that he's like really proud of her and that she's clearly grown into her own, and he needs to start thinking of her as a companion and not just like a little sister. And of course, Tron tells the Servbots too that she's really proud of them, especially her favorite. Our final scene in the game is basically everybody at a party, and Tron's talking with her favorite servbot, and he's like, oh yeah, I'm taking real pride in my work. I recently cleaned out the storage room a bunch. And she's just like, great, you helped us a ton. You're still doing all this 
all these chores great, everything's going great, and we've got the gold refractor. How much better could it do? Wait, the gold refractor was down in the storage room. And the servbot's just like, yeah, I cleaned out the storage room. And there, with the story ending the only way it could for the Bonds, which is in classic anime comedy, we can roll the credits. So, how do I feel about The Misadventures of Tron Bon? It's pretty good. I'm not as in love with it as I was with Legends. I will say that this game made me appreciate Tron as a character a ton. I understand why she's, like, such a popular figure. Even if this was a relatively unknown game, the personality of this game is absolutely top-notch. It's just a joy. The actual gameplay is a little bit hit and miss. Some of it is just a little bit slow. Some of it is impressively clunkier than Legends 1 was, which Legends 1 already puts off a lot of people because of its controls. The freeform structure of the game is really neat. I love the fact that you really do get to choose what you do or don't want to do, and you can undertake way more than you ever need in order to finish the game. There is a huge buffer where you never really have to worry about running out of money if you decide to like fully upgrade your Gustav. No, you'll be fine. And there's all the stuff with the serve bots and like which ones you want to upgrade and how much work you'll put into discovering everything about them. There is a flip side to this, of course, in that all this openness and general lack of tutorial can be really overwhelming. Like, it was a little bit scary at first, and it took me a couple hours into the game to actually find the tutorial serve bot, which by that point I'd already finished figuring out most of what it had to tell me anyway. It's a good thing this game is really forgiving, is my basic point, because a lot of this game's design, if it turned out that like only certain serve bots were really good or something like that, it could have made this game so much worse. But it's an extremely experimental, interesting, open game. Sometimes those experiments don't always work out. You know, the RPG mode, I wanted to like it more than I think I actually did, but I didn't hate it. The puzzle mode, I know some people are going to hate, even though I really liked it. Overall, though, I enjoyed this game warts and all. And while I could be a lot more critical of it, the fact that there isn't really another game like it doesn't mean that I point to another game and go, oh, you should just play that instead, the way I might with, like, some of the more mediocre classic Mega Man platformers. Misadventures of Tron Bond stands on its own. And while I don't know if I would recommend it to somebody who doesn't really know Mega Man in general, if you're a Legends fan and you already like what the Legends game are doing, go play this one if you haven't already. One thing I can pretty unilaterally criticize, I think, though, is the music, which is that this game still has most of the kinds of problems that Legends did. There's a ton of musical variety in here, but it's all, like, generally pretty small loops and not a terribly interesting sound font. It's extremely synthesized, which does give it the advantage that these short loops are able to loop flawlessly, but it's just, it feels like they should be able to do more with the game's music at this point. That said, there's a lot less stuff that's working with ambience compared to Legends, and so more of it sounds like it fits at home in, like, Mega Man. I don't know. In general, it is a step up over Legends, but it's still kind of falling prey to a lot of similar issues. But I do have three tracks I'm pretty happy to highlight. 
First up, immediately going against what I was just mentioning about ambient tracks is the Shalakan Ruins, which is the first-person exploration mode theme. It just kind of is the perfect track for it. It's this low tension, just kind of like echoing this feeling of the melody playing distantly, maybe somewhere over your head, and like driving low notes that just really fits that idea of first-person exploring an underground dungeon. There's a subtle use of wind in it. It's just, yeah, it just nails what it needs to be. The second track I want to highlight is the theme for Tron's room aboard the Gesellschaft. This is just this really chill, like, piano lounge relaxing. I really wish this loop was longer than it actually is, because this really short track is just really chill. Finally, I want to highlight the Nakai Deserts theme. This is the opening stage of the game, where you are playing as Teasel and doing the tutorial as you, like, traverse the desert in search of these runes. Oh, this track is so good. Like, it's got the rhythm and energy to it of a classic Mega Man track, while also carrying this western energy to it that is distinctive, I think, just about for the entire series at this point. This really sets up, like, a high expectation for the rest of the game, and it's kind of a shame the rest of the soundtrack isn't quite this good. This one lives up to what Mega Man expects. And with that, that wraps up our time with the misadventures of Tron Vaughn. Next time, I was really hoping to do a Capcom Taiwan PC title, but try as I might, I cannot get my hands on it. There was like five different Capcom Taiwan PC games that were released around this time. One of them I did manage to get my hands on. Three of them, I have no idea if anybody has their hands on them. And the last one, Rockman's Gold Empire, I was really hoping I could get my hands on. But long story short, everybody who shared these games online did so like at least 
four years ago, and those links are now defunct, and I cannot find them. And I'm going to continue hunting for them, but we're going to have to put off several of those games for a while. It's not even like I can go just buy a CD of them, because my laptop doesn't have a CD drive. But that doesn't mean that that's going to stop this show from continuing. It just means that we might have to skip over it and come back to it at some point in the future if I ever get my hands on it. Instead, we're going to pick up a weird little gaming device by the name of the Wonderswan for our next game and play something that never came out in North America. Until then, if you've enjoyed the show, feel free to send a message to whatamipodcastingfor at gmail.com. Feel free to follow us on Twitter at whatamipodcastfor using the number 4, waipf.podbean.com if you need an RSS feed or want to catch the latest downloads. Thanks for listening, I've been Garlisle. And just remember, if you're ever going to go rob a bank, make sure you've stocked up on Lego figurines so they can bust you out of jail afterwards.